quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners, and welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and with the new year just a few days away, we're continuing our countdown by looking back at some of the best episodes from the Best Ever Show in 2023. Today, we'll focus on one of the hottest asset classes in recent memory, mobile home parks. As the affordable housing crisis in the U.S. continues, many investors are turning their eyes to mobile home park investing, both to help meet the increased demand for affordable housing nationwide and to take advantage of the operating efficiencies, high margins, and the opportunity for accelerated depreciation that mobile home park investing can provide. With that in mind, we've pulled the best clips from some of the best episodes of 2023 that feature the best mobile home park investing advice ever. In this episode, we'll hear from Derek Vickers, Tyler Lekas, Mario Dottillo, and Daniel Weisfield. You can find links to each of their episodes in the show notes. We'll start with Derek Vickers. Derek is the CEO of Victory Investments and the owner of Park Investing Pros. He owns a total of 1,926 mobile home park pads, and in October, he sat down with our host, Ash Patel, to discuss his journey from insurance sales to mobile home park investor. In this excerpt, Derek takes us through his first mobile home park investment, sharing the lessons he learned in the process of turning a nasty, crime-ridden park into a prime cash-flowing asset. I'll let Ash and Derek take it from there. The first deal that you closed on, let's dive into that. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine had actually introduced me to a guy that's actually a partner of mine right now. He was a capital partner with him, had bought some mobile home parks with him in the Carolinas. So he introduced him to me and I started throwing him deals. He actually lives 10 minutes down the street from me. And I actually started, hey, look, I'm finding this deal. He knew about the business. I was like, hey, I'm underwriting this in an eight cap or whatever it was. And he'd be like, okay, well, hey, you should look at this. Your R&M expenses are a little low. You should up them here. So we became close during that period. And I was finding some pretty good stuff. It was in September. I got a call from him one day and him and I had been going back and forth talking for a few months now. And he's like, I have a deal. My operating partner backed out because it was a nasty deal. We're closing in seven days. Do you want in? I'm like, I'll call you back tomorrow. So I got off the phone and I'm like, what the heck am I thinking? I call him back. Yes, I'm in. So I actually got into that deal seven days before closing. There was no due diligence done, and we can get into the, all the nasty disasters and dead bodies we found in that park. And so I got into that deal, and my agreement was that I wasn't going to put any money into the deal, and I was going to get 20 to 25% of the actual deal for doing the operations. And I wanted to do that anyways because I wanted to learn the business. I wanted to learn how to manage a property because I'd never done that before. And the great thing about this property was actually about 15 minutes from my insurance office. So this should have been a no-brainer. No money in and a fair amount of equity for managing the property. What was the purchase price? $425,000. Now, I'll tell you, Ash, the only reason there was some hesitation, because if you drove to this property, you'd be like, oh my God, I'm not even buying this. So to give you the listeners an example here, this park actually used to be the place that the health department in Florida would actually take their new employees as an example of what not to do. So it was nasty. And when you say nasty, just a lot of trash everywhere, unkept homes, drugs. Yeah, unkept homes, drugs. Half the park was vacant units filled with homeless people, drugs. Criminals were living in the park. It was nasty. Damn, I'd pay you 25% to manage that too. (laughs) All right. So what was step one once you get in there? So step one was just establish ourselves as owners that were going to be present because the last owner was non-existent, not present. There was this one car that would drive through every day. It was his drug dealing spot. He would meet all of his customers there in our park because he knew there was no one ever there. The cops were never there. And so we had to establish presence there. And then we had to start getting the non-payers out because most of the people that were there weren't even paying rent. 
and the thing about this, yes, it was 2020 and COVID, but half of these people weren't even paying months before COVID started. So it was just a mess. These people were having parties in their house at night. I could go on and on. So that was step one. How do you get them to pay rent all of a sudden? Well, you don't. You get rid of them because if they haven't paid rent in eight months, they're not going to pay you rent anyways. And I'm sorry, unfortunately, real estate investing is not a charity business. Yeah, Derek, $425,000. I'm assuming this property is unloanable. Was it a cash purchase? It was a cash purchase, yes. How far are you guys from being able to have this sell ready? We refinanced it eight months later. It reappraised for $1.7 million. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, we crushed it and on that deal. What all did you do to gain that value? There was 22 boxes, which we would call a mobile home. There was 22 boxes on the dirt. Ten of them were occupied. And all of the homes were owned by us. There was eight double wides, and then the other 14 were single wides. So after we switched over the tenants, we actually sold the vacant mobile homes. They were in terrible shape for next to nothing, like 500 bucks, 1000 bucks to people as handyman specials. So the object was to get a buyer to come in and fix up the home, and we wouldn't charge them lot rent for three or four months while they were doing that. We also required them to put new vinyl siding and skirting on the mobile homes. And after they completed that, we actually brought additional capital into the deal to where we would reimburse them for the material cost of the siding and skirting after they were done. So A, we were able to bring in new great people that needed affordable housing. They passed the background check. These are good families. One, and we were able to bring them in at market lot rent. So the single wides were in there at $4.95, and then the double wides were in there at $6.45. And that's what we did. So we had a fully occupied paying park, and this was in a great market too, over in Brevard County in Florida. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but a great market, and we were fully occupied. Doesn't Brevard County have their jail on the water? Maybe. I'm not sure exactly. We were on some riverboat tour, and we saw the jail from a beautiful yacht. Anyway, so 22 homes, 10 were occupied. How many total lots? So there's 30 total lots there, but there was eight vacant pads. Okay. And did you bring new homes for those? Yeah, because we had to tear one home down, so I brought in one new home in that park, but we haven't done the rest of it yet. You hear all the myths. They're not building any more mobile home parks. They actually are. They're not building any new mobile homes. They actually are. How hard is it to find a home to bring into your pad? Well, it's actually relatively easy. You can get a new home today. It's just, do you want to pay 55 grand for the home plus moving costs? And then you have to sell that home. So it's a lot of out-of-pocket capital. There's programs that you can use where people can get financing for these things. But again, you have to be in a better market for people to be able to afford a five or $600 payment above the lot rent. Used homes are a little bit harder to find. But even now in Florida, to get a good used home, you're 20 to 30 grand in, you're five to 10 to move it, depending on where it's coming from. So they're easy to get. It's just you have the capital to actually do it, if that makes sense. And that's the only solution. You've got to pay to bring them in. Yep. What did you do to reestablish the reputation of this park? Well, that was difficult because this park was actually a known place where criminals could go after they got out of whatever they were doing. So basically, I put a new sign out front, Sunshine Mobile Home Park. You can look it up. You can go by there and drive it if you want to. I put It's a white vinyl fence, but it's not the flat vinyl. It's actually like you would see in the front of a farm or something. I can't think of the name, like the two-panel fence. We paved the roads, and now these people in this park have taken such pride of ownership that they've got plants planted out in front of their house. Some of the tenants actually have cobblestone driveways that they've made pulling up to their mobile home. It's 1633 Lake Drive, if you want to check it out. But when I drive through this park now, it's like, oh my gosh, and we put up solar lights. So we have these solar lights that give the park sort of a futuristic type look. 
And just over time, people start to drive by there and like, okay, this place isn't a dump anymore. It doesn't happen overnight. It just progressively happens over time. And it obviously is not what it was before. What are the risks of buying mobile home parks now? The risks? Well, I think one of the biggest risks, and I talk about this in my due diligence checklist thing that we have in our program, it's we have a park that was developed in 1948, okay? They were developed in the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. The infrastructure was installed, permitted, and built then. So here we are in 2023. You're 30, 40, 50 years out on the lifespan of these things. Septics are breaking. People are having to dig new wells. Even city water and city sewer parks, the pipes are old and they're having to be replaced. And so the biggest risk is infrastructure and not understanding that when you're going into the deals and understanding that there's probably going to be some capex regarding the infrastructure and it could be huge. So that's, I would say, one. And then another risk is just not buying one. And waiting for a home run deal like we had, I see people waiting for that deal, but I think it's the right place, right time thing for us. But buying a base hit deal now is good because think about the learning experience that you're going to get from that. You're going to get some wealth building over time, but you're going to learn how to operate a park. You're going to understand the nuances of it. And that is just as valuable. Now, you don't want to buy a deal where you lose money, of course, but that's what I would say the two biggest risks are now. What's been the hardest lesson you've learned, Derek? And I'm not talking about, I should have gone bigger, faster. I'm talking about a gut-wrenching lesson that you've learned in this journey of yours. There's a couple that really stand out. And I think it's really just growing too fast. And I hate to even say that, but when you grow too fast and buy value add properties fast, you don't have the organization in place to do it. It can get messy. It can get pretty nasty and you can lose money in places that you weren't thinking because you're just flying by the seat of your pants. So if I was a new park owner and I was buying my first park in planning to scale, I would actually get the systems and processes in place. If you change something, write a step-by-step process out and how to do that so you can actually bring someone in so you can scale that faster. Don't wait till you get to a thousand lots and the world's on fire and everything breaks like I did and try to just bootstrap your way there because it's not going to work. It's going to break. Things are going to happen. You're going to lose money. And you may not even be able to survive that, as crazy as that sounds, because you got to have those systems in place to do that and systems in place to not give your managers access to money. Because if you're hiring these managers on these parks, they can easily steal from you. Just stuff like that. I would totally say you got to put those processes in place so you can protect your investment. From day one. That is great advice. A lot of people get inundated trying to dig their way out of not having systems. So piggybacking on Derek's advice, best ever listeners, if you are starting out with your first property, act as if you're going to get 10 more in the next year. And can you still do what you're doing with whatever systems you have in place or do you need to step it up? So invest in the proper software, proper systems, and perhaps hiring an assistant. Next, we have Tyler Lekas. Tyler is the co-founder of the MHCI Group, which owns a total of 752 mobile home park pads and has 30 million in assets under management. Tyler joined Slocum Reed on the Best Ever Show back in October to discuss the five biggest mistakes mobile home park investors typically make and how you can avoid them. In this excerpt, Tyler shares two of those mistakes, including the downsides of park-owned homes and why being underinsured can sink your investment and your business. Tyler, I understand you have a list of five mobile home park investing mistakes you want to cover. Where do you want to start? Just five. I don't want to get too long-winded for the listeners here because I could go probably a little too far down the rabbit hole. But here are five biggest mistakes to probably avoid if you're getting in the mobile home park space. Number one is park-owned homes. And if your listeners don't know what a park-owned home is, just imagine a, a rental. So it's the same thing as a single family house or an apartment or a townhome. So you basically own the mobile home as well as you own the dirt under the mobile home. 
So you're renting both pieces of real estate out. Again, mobile homes are not really considered real estate. They're considered personal property. But like I said, I won't go down the rabbit hole. So the banks out there, because mobile homes are personal property, they don't consider the income from park-owned homes, the actual home rental, not the lot rental, as part of the cap rate. So when you're underwriting a deal with a lot of park-owned homes, make sure to exclude that park-owned home income because that's going to completely change your valuation. I'll give you an example. Park-owned home, a rental is renting for $700 a month. The lot rent is $300. So your home rent in that space is $400 a month. Well, if you've got, we'll say 10 pads at $700 a month, that's $7,000 in income. Well, the problem with that is, is that the only income you can include is really the $300 in lot rent. So it's really $3,000 a month that the bank's actually going to look at. That's going to completely change the valuation. It's going to completely change your cap rate. And it's going to completely change the DSCR, the debt service coverage ratio the bank's going to look at. So without getting too long-winded, again, that's probably our number one mistake. I guess I have a comment and then a couple of questions here, Tyler. One of them is that it's it's the mobile home itself that has actual plumbing and electrical fixtures and heating and cooling appliances. It's the home itself that breaks down over time and depreciates in value over time. I know a lot of mobile home park investors give that same advice and talk about that mistake. You bring up an interesting point about how banks are looking at it for financing. So two questions here. I want to ask both of them at the same time and then just let you roll with it. The first is, what are banks doing with that phantom income? In most cases, my understanding is if you're doing not just pad rent, but also mobile home rent, more than 50% of your gross revenue as an operator is going to be coming from the homes themselves, personal property. Bank doesn't consider it. Is there any sort of borrowability on that revenue, on that income? The second question is, in your experience, when you're selling and when you're buying, how much are prospective buyers discounting revenue and NOI, profit, coming from home rent as opposed to lot rent? If the bank is not lending any credence to the POH rent, then the buyer isn't going to as well. I won't talk in hypotheticals. If we were buying a property, banks said we're not lending any credence to the cash flow coming off park-owned homes and it's only the lot rent, guess what? We're not lending any credence to that either because we can't get any leverage on it. Most of our returns are going to be based off a levered return, especially in today's environment. We have to have that leverage to make our equity capital work. So we don't lend any credence really off any of the park-owned homes. And the reason for that is, is again, that income is not bankable. There could be other smarter investors out there that have probably bought more deals than us because they do lend credence to that. And maybe they come up with more equity down because they say, look, there is some tangible value here to these park-owned homes because you are getting real cash flow. You are getting real yield. Your first question was, is there any liquidity in those homes? I think you said something like that. Is that what you said, Slocum? Liquidity? That's a better way to ask the question than I did, Tyler. So really interesting. There's a bunch of chattel loan financing corporations out there. One of them, which we use called the 21st Mortgage Cash Program. So if you have a pitched roof late 90s home or 2000s or 2010s or whatever, the newer, the better. Those guys, if you have the title for the home and don't get me started on titles for mobile homes because it's like the freaking Wild West out there. I can't tell you how many of our park-owned homes we've bought that don't have titles, but we'll say, assume you have the title, then what happens is those chattel lenders out there will actually allow you to do a mini cash-out refi based on the NADA value, the NADA value. That's like the Kelly Blue Book of mobile homes. And what they'll say is, if you have the title, send it to us, send us basically all four sides of the mobile home, and then a bunch of interior photos. And then what we'll do is we'll put an NADA value on it and we'll put a note on that home and you guys will sign on the PG as the park owner. And then we'll actually give you a cash out refi of that at a hundred LTV. So if they think the home's worth 12,000, they'll write you a check for 12,000. So there is some liquidity there for sure, but the logistics on actually getting that money 
and seeing a capitalized, not a capitalized return, but actual tangible yield, the operational overhaul to get that done, you need a deep team, a very deep team to get the title for the park owned home, take pictures, go through all the steps. Cause the chattel lender doesn't just want pictures and a little application filled out. It wants a lot more than that. So it's a good question though, but you need some breadth within your team and you need some operational expertise because you're not just going to collect that income month one. It's going to take you some time to kind of recapture that. Mistake number five is being underinsured. We hate writing insurance checks every year. We rarely use them, but I'll give you a, a real life example. We had a house burn at one of our properties just recently. And to replace that house is probably going to cost us about $70,000. And I never got the insurance on the house completely on me. And now we basically have an asset that's doing nothing and producing no cash flow. So getting insurance, whether that's general liability and all the insurance on your park-owned homes, because unless you're Blackstone or your last name is Gates, you're going to be buying parks that are turnarounds. And buying parks that are turnarounds means you're going to be buying park-owned homes. That's just the facts of the matter. Insure every single one of your park-owned homes and make sure that insurance is qualified and in place throughout every single year that you have it. Because the amount of effort and energy, just going back to mistake number three, to replace that existing home if it burns is going to cost you so much money and not only time, but also capital. So being insured, we've seen too many operators, especially mom and pops, that never had insurance on their property. General liability as well. And the general liability, I don't even need to go into that. If you don't understand general liability, you got to take a 101 real estate crash course. But insuring your park-owned homes, you got to get that done because it has cost us tons of money for not doing that. So I would say that's the five biggest mistakes. Thank you. I'll want to run through all five again through my notes. And my trend, my theme only ran through the first four. So let's talk about this one. Being underinsured. How often do you see insurance brokers make proposals for insurance for your acquisitions that you believe to be underinsuring the property. Oh man. If I could give an example, yeah. I've already referenced the very old housing stock in Cincinnati that I manage. So what we often find is the difference between, uh, I'm not an insurance broker and I'm about to prove that, the difference between market value and replacement cost is often quite drastic. And I see insurance brokers propose coverages that will operate as replacement costs, meaning that money will not actually be dispersed to the insurance holder. It will be dispersed to contractors to repair or rebuild. And the insurance company will require that it would be rebuilt as it was previously. It could be architect, like structural brick construction. Anyways, I often see insurance brokers here not place enough of an emphasis on the reconstruction cost of a property that would be more expensive on today's terms to build and then not add sufficient income replacement in the event that there actually was something devastating to happen on site. Are you seeing things like that happen in the mobile home park space or is it that insurance brokers are proposing the right amount of insurance and investors are trying to tick up the NOI a bit by ticking down their insurance costs? Really good question. So the apartment space is going to be a little bit different than our space. If you talk to an operator with 10,000 units, he's probably seen a whole bunch more than us. But my narrow focus has been basically we get to dictate the value of whatever we think the replacement cost is going to be for our units. So if we can get insurance in place for our units, it costs us about 500 bucks a year to insure a $40,000 home. So if we got a home sitting there and we'll say it was a 1990 three bedroom, two bath champion. Well, that 1990, it ain't worth 40 grand. However, we can go and insure that home for 40,000 because we know to actually bring in a new home is gonna cost us 40,000. And that costs us about 500 bucks a year. So what we found is the insurance companies are pretty lenient on when we come in and we actually do our valuations on the park-owned homes that we currently have in inventory. They say, whatever value you want, we'll just charge you for it. If we said 70,000, I'm guessing it'd probably be 800 bucks a year. I'm making it up. Most of our homes are, we think we're worth about 40. However, the general liability 
it's almost impossible with the assets that we currently hold to get loss of income insurance. So if a tornado hits one of our mobile homes, and I think you've seen a tornado hit a mobile home park, ain't nothing left. So if a tornado hits one of our mobile home parks, we're toast. Unless we have a bunch of park-owned homes in there, we can't get loss of income insurance at all. So it's weird how, specifically in the state of Arkansas, a lot of those insurers have actually pulled out in the last 12 to 18 months. Thirdly, on the GL side, we've just started to get umbrella policies due to investors actually wanting more insurance coverage due to outside toxic risks. We've got a family office that we work with, just had a big problem with a motel and carbon monoxide and some other stuff. So they want us to now start putting more umbrella coverage on our mobile home parks. And again, two different asset classes. And again, I'm just talking about our business personally, not everybody's business. But again, those are three points that I have there. Loss of business, insuring park-owned homes, and then the general liability. We're getting umbrella policies, at least on half of our parks now because of this family office we work with. So that's the nuances there. But I totally understand where you're coming from because- to get a replacement value of a building these days with all the inflation we've had, I can't imagine how difficult that is. I cannot imagine. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. If you want to listen to the rest of Tyler's five most common mistakes that mobile home park investors make, including learning how immobile mobile homes really are and how the city can actually help you with your operating expenses, click the link in the show notes. Next up, we have Mario Dottillo. Mario is the owner of Celebrate Communities, which raises capital to invest in mobile home parks that his management company runs. As of his January recording with Slocum, Mario owned more than 1,000 lots and had more than 50 million in assets under management. In this excerpt, Mario discusses his strategy for vertical integration, specifically why it makes sense for mobile home park investing, when to vertically integrate as you scale your portfolio, and why with mobile home parks, there's safety and scale. I know you said, or at least I said, that you own a management company for mobile home parks, and you said you have some other peripheral businesses around mobile home parks. Tell us more about those. Yeah, Celebrate Communities is actually the management company that operates the communities. We've got a few holding companies, Real Estate Acquisitions USA, Equity Growth, and a couple others that actually own the real estate. But Celebrate Communities is the management company, and we use third-party management as well. We also own a title company for mobile homes. It's called Celebrate Title. And we also have Celebrate Homes, which is a dealership that infills vacant lots in communities, does the home sales, and then also does brokering of homes for residents within our communities as well. And I've got an education company called Real Cashflow that is focused around teaching people how to acquire and invest in mobile home parks as well. So we've got this ecosystem going where regardless of what someone's involvement is or they want it to be in the industry, we can help service them and take care of them. And it really is nice because not only are we doing these things for our businesses, but we can use it as a way to build relationships with other community owners too. And it's kind of evolved over time. So with your title company and your development and brokering company, if I'm describing it accurately, are those primarily to service your own portfolio and your own transactional needs? Or do those companies spend more of their efforts working for other mobile home park owners? So we started all these companies really to support our business. And the reason is because 
mobile home parks and the industry in general is still pretty old school, I guess you could say. It's not very efficient. There's not good property management. There's not good mobile home title companies. And I'm not ripping on anybody. Everybody knows it. It's in the consolidation phase right now. So you don't have a lot of really good support companies. So each one of these businesses was formed really to support our portfolio. And just recently, we started offering it to outside clients. But I would say the majority of the business is still supporting our portfolio. And I think in 2023, we'll see that shift. We've started doing some different marketing and hired someone to handle relationships for outside clients a little bit better so that we can drive it to the public more as well. Tell us more about the relationship with deciding to build these peripheral businesses and scaling your own portfolio. Did you come to a time or a portfolio size where you realized that having a little more control, having the ability to bring in-house these other activities related to your assets, was there a particular portfolio size where you just realized, okay, now it's time, we should be developing our own empty lots, or did it come about for some other reason? Really good question. And I think anyone that is getting into the manufactured housing industry, mobile home park industry, will hit this same situation. They're going to hit that benchmark where they go, okay, I think we're at the point where we either need to take control of this or we got to find a really good vendor that can handle it. And I would say it was about when we hit about five communities, we recognized that the management company that was managing our property was just not going to be able to manage it the same way we did. So that's when we formed our own management company. I hired a great person who'd been a COO for a very large apartment group and helped me put that in place. And the dealership was a mechanism of a couple things. It had to do with regulations because depending on how many homes you're selling per year, you need to be a licensed dealer. So for us, we had to do it from a regulatory standpoint, but also bringing people in who are experts in renovating mobile homes and selling and doing things like that just gave us the efficiencies that we need. And we're constantly improving that, but it was purely out of necessity. The title company is relatively new, and that's because we've tried both local and national title companies. And anyone who's in the mobile home park industry knows that titles are a nightmare. They're just a mess. Think about car titles and dealing with the DMV. Well, put that on steroids and every county of every state has different processes and every state has different licenses. So it really made sense just to bring somebody in-house and they are treated as separate businesses. They bill each other. It's run as separate companies, but it was really the focus of just trying to get better at what we're doing for our own portfolio. And then in the not so far off history, we decided, look, there's a lot of other people who could really use this. And it also helps to attract better staff if you are a more profitable company. And just pulling back the curtain and giving your listeners the inside scoop on this, when you are your own client, it's hard to charge yourself market rates. You find yourself discounting things. You find yourself not trying to make a profit as much because you're just trying to get efficiencies out of things and get work done. But when you start offering it to the public, you can then offer market rates, which then allows your companies to become more profitable and in return, attract better talent to work in those companies. And that's why we are making them outward facing versus just inward facing companies. In the mobile home park space, when is it that you really need to start bringing more of the operations of your communities in-house? So there's a unique aspect to our industry, and I kind of touched on it before, but because most of the owners that own these communities nationally are mom and pops, meaning a lot of them have developed these communities with their bare hands over long extended periods of time. Some of them still live in the community and they're not running these properties efficiently. There really isn't a lot of supporting companies for our industry. For example, there's probably four to five sizable management companies in the country that manage mobile home parks. In apartments, you can pretty much go buy an apartment, find a management company to manage in almost any market, and you're good to go. And that's what's beautiful about apartments is it is a very efficient, very professional industry and market. That isn't the case yet 
in mobile home park world. So really anyone who gets into the world of mobile home parks needs to plan on starting a management company from day one and building it out that way. And the reason that I did not is because I was in a unique situation. I had someone that was a regional manager for one of the top five owners in the country. And I had been talking to him and his office was out of a pretty good sized community down the street. And he said, I could manage that 57 space community for you on the weekends and evenings. That's nothing. So he pretty much started his own management company on the evenings and weekends to help me on my first. And then as we grew, he left that company and went full-time with me. And he basically built his management company alongside of us. And then at some point, I just said, look, we need to do this on our own. But most people are not going to have that luxury of just looking up a management company to operate the mobile home communities. The title company, some people will probably always contract that out just because it's not a super profitable business. It's paper pushing and it's very complicated. The others, the dealership, most owners of communities are going to start a dealership simply because they have to. And whether they run it properly and run it as a business or they just have a license hanging on the wall to do what they're doing and they do it kind of more mom and pop style, they're going to have to get a dealer's license if they're doing any sort of scale in any market. So it's very different than apartments. And I'm excited to hear what you say in comparison to apartments, because most people getting into the mobile home park space are coming from the apartments or self-storage world because they're seeking yield. So they're thinking that they can get into our industry and do it the same way that they do it apartments in the storage world. And then once they realize they can't, they get burnt out very quickly and say, whoa, 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 I thought this was going to be easier. I thought I could just get a management company to run this for me and they can't. So it's something that I think all investors looking to get in an active capacity should know about our industry. Let me say one other thing about that. Because the industry is so dated and there isn't a lot of efficiencies or professionalism yet, there's a lot of opportunity. And that's where we're able to get really attractive returns and buy great deals with lots of upside and value add opportunities because there aren't the efficiencies. There's not the data like you have in a lot of these other industries. So it is a challenge, but it's also the opportunity in our industry. And as our industry consolidates, that will become less and less the case. The other thing I wanted to mention about that too, and I would almost encourage, it's going to sound backwards, new investors to not go too small. And I don't want to give you the wrong idea that you should take too much risk, but there is safety in scale. So buying it, and I'm kind of going off of your two-space community comment, and you're exactly right. Nobody should buy a two-space or a five-space mobile home park. I truly believe that because one surprise expense will wipe out returns. There's a reason that smaller parks struggle, and it's because the payroll of the on-site manager is going to be somewhat close to what a little bit larger community is going to be. That one plumbing break is going to have a lot more impact on it. So I would look at going as large as you can, and that will also help you get into the scale where you can afford the employees sooner. This is going to shock people, but I've never collected rent from a tenant in my life. Ever, personally. I've never collected rent from a tenant, ever. So that's very backwards from what a lot of people do, because like you said, it's good to be in that seat where you are managing things yourself because it's a great learning opportunity. In the situation that I was in, I was able to do it and avoid that whole process by finding someone day one that was very good at it. And from then on, I've always had people with experience come in and run that company where they were trained by large institutional investors. So I would highly recommend going as large as you can and get to the scale where you can afford people to help you because ultimately every day that you're in the daily grind, you aren't paying attention to the big picture strategy. You're not paying attention to a lot of the things that make great asset managers great. You can't do that when you're collecting rent and posting notices and doing things like that because it takes a lot of time. So that's my recommendation. Scale as fast as you can. Responsibly, 
into good assets that are cash flowing strong. I want to add that to the end there. Absolutely. Finally, next up, we have Daniel Weisfield. Daniel is a third generation mobile home park investor and the co-founder of Three Pillar Communities, which is now a top 30 mobile home park owner in the U.S. with roughly a $500 million portfolio made up of 65 communities in 11 states. In his full episode, Daniel discussed the challenges of developing mobile home parks, which is his primary business model. In this excerpt, Daniel focuses on the changing stigma around manufactured housing, especially when it comes to the Class A communities he develops and how investors can get in on the mobile home park development game. And best ever listeners, Daniel is a repeat guest. If you Google Joe Fairless and Daniel Weisfield, his first episode will show up. And he blew us away by debunking a myth last time that they're not building any new mobile home parks. And again, I was blown away because I know a lot of people in this space and one of their pitches to investors, Daniel, is there's a limited supply. They're not building any new mobile home parks. And I think that's the prevalent understanding from most people out there. You debunked it and you're actually building new mobile home parks. Can we dive into that, please? Yes. So let's first talk about the myth. A lot of people have profited from this myth that no new mobile home parks can be built. And I think, as you said, it's part of the pitch. People hype it up. They say, you want to buy mobile home parks because there is such a competitive moat. It's impossible to build new product. Therefore, these things will only go up and down. And the reality is, it has been extremely hard to develop new parks over the last, let's say, 30 years. And that's largely because of nimbyism and stigma. This is the most stigmatized form of housing that exists in the United States. So for that reason, a lot of communities have not wanted to approve new mobile home parks because of this stereotype about trailer parks, right? We don't want that in our backyard. But that started to change for a few reasons. Number one, the quality of the product has gotten way, way better. So new manufactured homes look gorgeous. Got nice wood siding, a pitched roof, stainless steel appliances, granite countertops. These are really nice homes. And number two, communities are struggling with the housing affordability problem. And a lot of towns and cities and counties have realized that we are the best game in town for providing affordable housing and providing it quickly. So for that reason, you're starting to see a new wave of park development. And I'd like to say we're part of the tip of the spear. We're one of the early developers in this new wave of parks. Can you give us an example of mobile home parks that you got online recently, or maybe that you're trying to work with a municipality currently? What challenges, how you got it done? Absolutely. So let me start with the success story, and then I'll tell you a failure story. Does that work? Absolutely. Great. Okay. So for our early success story, I'll talk about Bozeman, Montana. We are developing a new 250-unit manufactured housing community in Bozeman called Cameron Crossing. And your listeners can check it out. Go to cameron-crossing.com, and you'll see our awesome renderings of the community going to show our clubhouse, the dog park we're building, images of the new homes we're bringing in. This is really a class A manufactured housing community. Take whatever stereotype you have in your mind about a trailer park, throw it out the window. That is not what we're building. We have walking trails, dog parks, really nice homes with site-built garages, concrete driveways. This looks like a subdivision. But if you were to buy a three-bedroom, two-bath home, at a conventional subdivision in Bozeman, where, where the home buyer has to buy the land, that's going to cost you anywhere from $500,000 to $900,000. Bozeman's a hot market. A ton of people moved there during COVID. Incredible skiing, fly fishing, mountain biking, universities, coffee shops. It's a really cool place. So housing prices have gone through the roof. We can sell that exact same home, really nice three-bedroom, two-bath home, with a garage and a nice driveway and a backyard and amenities. And we can sell that home for anywhere between $199,000 and $300,000, where we keep the land, the resident owns the home, the home appreciates over time, and the resident pays us a lot rent payment every month. Does that make sense? It does, except for the home appreciates over time. Is that typical for mobile homes? Or atypical. Yes. Okay. Here is another big myth 
that I'm glad we were touching on. Lots of people perpetuate this idea that a mobile home is a depreciating asset, just like a car, and the second you drive it off the lot, it starts declining in value. And that is both true and not true. So I'll tell you when it's true. It's true if you take a mobile home and you take it off the dealer's lot and you go dump it in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, or if you dump it in the desert in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico, it will depreciate over time. You find a 1970s single wide and it's rusted out sitting in the middle of the field, of course, it has zero value. However, you take that same 1970s single wide mobile home and you put it in a manufactured housing community that's well-managed in a housing market that is supply constrained, more people want to buy homes and their homes available, then that home has an inherent value because it's on a lot. It's a place you can actually move into and live in a desirable market. So as long as those conditions are met, you're in a good market and you have a well-managed community, mobile homes appreciate over time. And the best example of this is probably San Jose, California. You're in Silicon Valley, housing is expensive. If you want to go buy a 1962 single wide trailer, one bedroom, one bath in a mobile home park in San Jose, you're going to pay $100,000 to $200,000. And in some of our other communities, like on the Oregon coast, on a beautiful park called Emerald Coast Estates, new double wide homes were sold in that park for around $100,000 when they were new 20 years ago. And now they sell for $200,000 to $300,000. So this becomes a real source of wealth creation for our residents. So then you're flipping the model around and the playbook on mobile homes says buy the mobile home park, sell off all the homes, keep the lot rent. If your properties are appreciating, you don't want to sell, do you? Well, let me clarify. So let me take Bozeman as an example. We bought raw land from a farmer. Okay. The Dykstra family, they were growing alfalfa there for the past hundred years. We bought the raw land. We worked with the county. We got entitlements. We brought the engineer, the contractor. We're building out horizontal infrastructure right now. We're doing all the marketing and the branding. And then we also have a mobile home dealership where we're building homes with factories. We're going to bring those homes in and install them. And then we set up a sales center right there on site. And we want to sell those homes to the end customer for a few reasons. Number one, our residents want to own their own home, right? That's why this is more valuable to them than living in an apartment. If you're in an apartment, they're just a renter, right? If they live in our community, they own an appreciating asset. They can customize that home. They can paint it. They can do interior renovation, whatever they want. They have their own front yard and backyard. They don't share any walls with a neighbor. So they want to achieve that dream of home ownership. And we also want them to achieve that dream of home ownership. If they own their own home, it means we have a very stable, long-term resident who's got skin in the game. They own a home in the community. They're going to maintain it with pride of ownership and we'll have very low turnover, right? Our average tenancy is around 10 years. So we're happy for the resident to own the home. That's the model we like. And if the home appreciates over time, we want that appreciation to go to the resident. We don't need to keep it. What we want to keep is the It's less overhead, less management. There's that 60 minutes episode. There's all the news stories on these newbies buying mobile home parks, selling off the units, jacking up rents. People can't afford to move their mobile homes. They get evicted or foreclosed on, and it's bad. The stigma out there is bad for mobile home operators. I'm a savvy commercial real estate investor. If I were to buy one of these mobile homes on your lot, I would want long-term lease renewals. Is that something you do? I would say, look, I want to make sure I'm protected and you can't jack up my rent 20% every year. Can I have a five-year lease with three renewals? Is that even possible? Yes. What? (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. I love the question. The answer is yes. We're offering five-year leases at Bozeman with clear CPI-linked escalations. And at the end of five years, we have the ability to reset to market and then we'll offer another five-year lease. And that is the security that a customer wants if they're going to spend $250,000 to buy a really nice manufactured home. Daniel, you're a third generation mobile home operator. For some of our best ever listeners that maybe aren't as experienced as you, or maybe you're just new, how can they do what you're doing and convince their community where there's a shortage of housing to build a manufactured housing park? Yeah. 
Number one, I really appreciate that question because I really believe in the power of dreaming. And so much is possible in America if you just try. And I think you'll probably have a lot of listeners who are listening to this and thinking, gosh, I've seen that 30-acre parcel outside my town and nothing's been developed on it. And we have a real affordable housing problem. And I wonder if I could get a new community approved. And if you're out there thinking that, go try it. The first step is find out who owns the land and try to control the land, either buy the land or tie it up with a purchase and sale agreement with a long due diligence period that gives you enough time to assess feasibility. That's step one. Step two is go talk to your local planning staff. There's someone at City Hall who works in the planning department who can tell you what's the land zoned for and would they allow you to build manufactured housing on it. And if it's zoned agriculture or industrial, you might be allowed to build manufactured housing by right, meaning you can do it automatically under the zoning. Or they might tell you, no, it's not allowed, but we'd like to see manufactured housing here. We think that's a good way to solve our community's housing problem. So we can work with you and maybe give you a conditional use permit. Go take their temperature. If they say, heck no, we have that land reserved to build a shopping center under our zoning. We don't want a mobile home park there. Then don't waste your time. Drop that deal and go look for some of it. That's it for today, Best Ever listeners. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this roundup of some of our favorite Best Ever clips from 2023. Be sure to tune in tomorrow and through the new year for more of the best of 2023. And until then, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a Best Ever day. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.